John chapter 5. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are currently studying through the book of 1 John, and we're making our way through the New Testament, the entire New Testament, verse by verse, book by book. And so, very excited about finishing this book. We may not make it through the end of this book. We may get raptured before that. May happen. Got your attention there. That's good. By the way, the next couple weeks, you're going to think I'm lightning fast because we're going to cover two books in two weeks, Lord willing, um, Second and Third John. So um, if you thought I couldn't do it, I'm going to prove you wrong. First John chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. John writing by the Spirit, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son." He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning of a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we look through this last chapter of John, we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish every intent that you have for us uniquely on this day together, studying as a family. We pray that your spirit would make application of these verses. We pray, Lord, that you'd make us more like Christ through them. 
And we yield our hearts to you, Lord. Speak to us whatever you want to speak to us about. We're open before you, Lord. Our hearts are open, and we want to be doers of your word, not just hearers only. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, finishing chapter 5 today, the Apostle John has been dealing with these false teachers known as Gnostics. And last week, he spoke of the importance of testing the spirits, that we shouldn't just believe any teaching that we hear. And that ultimately behind any doctrine, either it's behind those doctrines is either the Holy Spirit or demonic spirits. That's it. That's the origination of any teaching. So we have to recognize that God puts that responsibility uh, over on us for us to test the spirits to make sure. Because he says many, not some, but many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets don't identify themselves as, you know, hi, I'm Larry, the false prophet. You know, uh, they, they're very slick and they have nice suits and, and they sometimes have churches and they have platforms from which to speak. And so you have to test. Jesus said, beware of false uh, prophets for they are inwardly ravenous wolves. And so they're hungry to devour other people by their false teachings. And so we have to test all things by Scripture. And so never put your trust in someone where you don't test what they say by Scripture, myself included. Always test what anybody says. But also he gave us five specific reasons to love, as we saw last week. If you didn't hear that, you can go online or get the CD. But there are five specific reasons. He says we should love because God is love. Number two, we should love in order to follow God's example. Because God sent his son as an expression of love. So thus, we should follow in his example by loving uh, his people. We should also love because love is at the heart of of Christian witness. We should love. All men will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. So people come to know Christ because of how believers love one another. And so that's important. Fourthly, he said we should love because it's one way we receive assurance That we're in the truth. We love one another because people that don't know God don't love one another with the kind of supernatural love that God the Holy Spirit gives us and gives us that unconditional love for people. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And then lastly, he said we're to love because it gives us boldness at the judgment seat of Christ. Because someday we're going to stand before Christ, we're going to have to give an account for our lives, and we're going to have to give a reason why we uh, did what we did. And the reason should be love. Paul told us that in 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, we have nothing. So if we love aggressively in this world in a spirit-directed way towards his people, then we know now that we'll have boldness on that day when we stand before Jesus and give an account for our ministries. Now, in our chapter this morning, John's going to mainly focus on two ideas in verses 1 through 13. He's going to deal with the reality that salvation is only available through the Son. And that's important because these, these false teachers were, were saying it happened through knowledge, having knowledge, a certain kind of knowledge. But we know that salvation happens through Christ alone. And if you reject the Son, you're rejecting the Father. And they go together. You can't have one without the other. So that's important. But also we'll see in verses 14 through 21, him deal with helping us minister to the backslidden brother or someone that's struggling in 
sin. And all of that is all in the context of continuing to drive home the point to these believers that Jesus came in the flesh. And we're going to deal with some very specific things that drive that that point home, as he's been doing all through the book, as we've seen. Now, in verse 1, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. So let's first of all start with the first part of the verse. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is is born of God. Now, this has to be balanced with the rest of Scripture, of course. And it's not just talking about mental agreement. There are people that mentally agree that Jesus is the Son of God, but they have never repented of their sin. They've never received salvation. It's like the illustration, the famous illustration is kind of like a rickety old wooden suspension bridge that goes across a very deep ravine, and you see people going across it, and, and they're doing it, and they're, they're getting to the other side, and you say, well, I believe that that'll work, but then someone says, will you go across? No. I'm not going to, well, then you don't truly believe then. If you're not willing to take a risk in the sense where something bad could happen if it doesn't come through, then you don't truly believe. So there's the aspect of trust. Someone at that suspension bridge could say, I believe in my head it works, but I don't trust it, and I'm not getting on it. There's a lot of people out there that believe that Jesus is the Son of God intellectually, but they don't trust him. They've never repented of their sins, and we're told, in, in, in fact, John told us, uh, in his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 12, he said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So John wrote this, this, this letter that we're looking at. He also wrote the gospel of John. We get to interpret scripture with scripture. Again, that's very important related to Bible interpretation. So trusting in him is receiving him, and receiving him is trusting in him. It's not just mental assent. Now, what does he say at the end of this verse? What does it mean when he says, everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him? And I believe it means loving Christ and loving his people go together. It's a package deal. If you truly love God, if you truly love Jesus, then you have to, the one who begot us, the one who gave us a spiritual birth, then you also love those who have been begotten of him. So it goes together. So sometimes people say, well, I love God, but I'm not so sure about his people. I don't love his people at all. I've never loved his people. We're told there in, in, in the verse that that's impossible. That's an invalid statement. You can't love God. And he's already said it. If you hate your brother, you can't, if you can't hate your brother that you have seen, how can you love God whom you haven't seen? It's the same idea here. So we will love those that that God has, has caused to be born again and, and his son, sons and daughters. It's a, it's, it's a package deal. And so that, that speaks to us to continuously be open to how we should think about and treat and, and serve and help and love others in our family. We don't get to pick and choose, just like in a real family. You don't get to pick and choose in that family. <laughs> and you can't show favoritism as a sibling towards one sibling versus another. You have to love each sibling equally. You can't say, oh, I'm not going to deal with you. You're, you're a pain. <laughs> so I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to, you know, we can't do that. If you're in the family, you're in the family. And, and you, you, get, you have to deal with who has is, is been placed in your life. Now notice in verse 2, he links obeying God with loving his people as well. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. It's very interesting. 
Because it's clear that there's a direct connection between loving and obeying God and loving his other children as well. And I think that's the connection here from the previous verse to this verse. Think of a healthy, functional human family. There are rules. There are family rules. You can't barbecue on the roof. You can't, you know, be cruel to the animals. You can't, I mean, you never know. People might want a barbecue on the roof. Yeah, I mean, that shouldn't have to be a rule probably. But, you know, if that ever, if it ever came to that, you could lay down that rule. You have to obey that. Maybe some of you do barbecue on the roof. Interesting to see how that works out for you. Let's move on. Uh, so there's family rules. And we, if, if one person is out of sync with those rules, it causes chaos, causes chaos in the family. And if one person is in rebellion in the family, it ca- really causes chaos in the family. So he says, we know that we love the children of God if we love and keep his commandments. Because his commandments are to love one another. What, what did Jesus say the greatest commandments are? To love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They're connected. They've always been connected. Loving God and loving people have always been connected in God's mind and in his heart. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed over the years of walking with the Lord that those that are consistently growing in maturity, and that happens through obedience, as they continue to grow in maturity and obeying God, they have less and less problems with other people in the body of Christ. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. There's, there's, when you have an unhealthy environment, there's contention. There's fighting because people aren't mature. But as they grow in maturity, they put up with a lot of things. They're more gracious. They're more forgiving. They, they overlook people's shortcomings. They don't fixate upon people's weaknesses and how they fall short all the time. They're focusing on how God sees them and appreciates the good that, even if it's a little bit of good that's coming out of a person's life, they're recognizing that and they're encouraging them. So it's really important for us to see. But then the people that are not growing, one problem after another with other people. And they go through life sometimes thinking, everything's wrong with everybody else. And they don't realize that they're the problem. And as they grow in their maturity and they grow in Christ-likeness, then they'll have the capacity to deal with... You know, all of us should be able to have interpersonal relationships with anybody. Because of the Spirit of God, because the love that he gives us, we should be able to get along with anybody. We should be able to be appropriate with everybody. It doesn't mean we're going to be chums and, sorry, it's a little Batman vernacular there. Sorry, old chum, you know, Batman talking to Robin. But we don't have to always be chums, but we have to be appropriate with people. Appropriate. So even if they're not being right with us, appropriate is turning the other cheek. It's not being overcome with evil, but overcoming evil with good. To bless people when they curse us. And all those things take supernatural power. And he calls us to it. Now he says in verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And the first thing I want to point your attention to is he doesn't say, For this is the love for God. Did you see that? He says, For this is the love of God. Which means this is the love that God has directed towards us, that we keep his commandments. Now why why would he do that? Because his commandments are good for us. And if they're an extension of our love. When you're a child, you don't recognize that your parents are putting rules and telling you to obey certain things for your good. But as you get older, 
And you start to see, wow, they knew what they were talking about. That, those things really did protect me. Those things really did help me and so forth. And you start to appreciate your parents, as they say, as you get older, the, the wiser your parents get. They're not getting any wiser. You're just realizing how wise they, they were all along. So it's the same with God. This is the love of God. This is the love he extends to us to say, these are my commandments. Obey these things because disobeying is bad for you. Now, it is true he wants us to obey him and be holy because he is holy. But also, high up on his priority list is for us to obey him because he knows that those commands are for our benefit. And he says, they're not burdensome. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in addition to that, he's given us all the power we need as we open ourselves up to that power to obey his commandments. They're not burdensome. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to accomplish them. But as he gives us that power, as we yield to him, then we can accomplish them. But I think the main reason, and this is in line with the rest of the theme of love that we see through this chapter and in the book, that the main reason that they're not burdensome is that when you love someone, you'll do anything for them. Classic example is Jacob in the Old Testament. His name means heel catcher or supplanter. He was, a, he was very good at being deceptive and, and like finagling to get his way and so forth. He thought he was the supreme finagler until he met old Uncle Laban. He hadn't seen nothing until he saw his uncle. And he fell in love with Rachel and he made a deal with, with Laban to work for him for seven years. And Laban pulled a fast one on him and so forth. But it says in, the, in, in uh, Genesis there, it says that those years seemed like very, a few days. Why? Because of his love for Rachel. When you love somebody, whatever is necessary to be able to engage that person or to have a relationship with them, it doesn't matter how hard it is, how difficult it is. It's not burdensome because you love them. Guys, remember when you first fell in love? You wore deodorant. You combed your hair. You, went, you maybe cleaned your place a little bit. You went through these things you never would do before. It's like, what is that? What, what is cleanliness? What is personal hygiene? But when, now when it, there's love involved, all oh, these, these requirements are not burdensome at all. You don't mind it one bit. Now, the key is you've got to keep doing that, obviously, uh, in, in, in the relationship. Remember last week we saw John tell us by the Spirit, we love him because he first loved us. See, he's the initiator. He's initiated this love relationship that we have. So all our whole life should be a response to what he's already done for that, done for us. And so because of that, his commandments aren't burdensome. We should have the heart attitude, Lord, whatever you want. Whatever it is you want from my life. That's the, that's what he, that's the kind of heart he wants when we open up his word. Lord, speak to me. Whatever you say to me, I'm going to do by your grace and by your power. I'm not going to roll up my sleeves and try to do it in my own strength. I'm going to ask for your grace and your power to do it, but I want to do it. I want to bless you because I love you because all of what you're asking me to do is nothing compared to how you've already demonstrated your love for me. So they're not burdensome. Maybe that's speaking to some of us today. Maybe you've been grinding uh, under something that God's been telling you to do. It's not burdensome. It's not even close to what he deserves from us. Whatever, however hard it is, not even close to what he's done for us. Now notice he gets to overcoming in verses 4 and 5. He says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 
I love the theme of overcoming. Jesus overcame the world, and he loves to give us the capacity to overcome the world. And notice it is a battle. Look at the word victory there in verse 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. There's a battle. You don't have victories without battles, right? It's a, it's a complete battle that we're in. But he, he gives us the victory, and he says, whatever is born of God overcomes. He doesn't say might overcome. He says, whatever is born of God overcomes. He gives us the power to do it. And you notice he says the means by which we overcome is our faith. And we're not called to have faith in our faith. There's all kinds of ministries built on that, teaching that we should have faith in our faith. He says, no, we should have faith in him. We should have faith in God. And so our relationship with him, that is the faith about which he speaks. Not just some moment in time where I have faith in God and his promises, as wonderful as that is. It's talking about the totality of our walk with him. And all that he brings in that, to that relationship, that gives us the capacity to overcome. Maybe you're here today and you don't feel like you're overcoming. God says you're overcoming. You're here. His promises are true no matter if you haven't been faithful or, you've been faithful or not. And he's going to continue to be faithful to his word. He cannot lie. So we need to have confidence that he's going to give us that victory. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And, th- it is, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Now people debate on what this water and blood are. We're not told explicitly in his word, but the consensus is that he's, and really the most obvious explanation in light of what he's been speaking about, um, is speaking of the totality of Jesus' life. Uh, there's a false teaching back then that was going around that, that was in line with what these Gnostic false teachers were teaching that said that Jesus was a man and then when he was baptized, the Christ spirit came upon him before he died on the cross, it left him. And so I think John here is, is communicating that the totality of his life <clears throat> was, was, uh, came from God and he's of God the whole entirety of his life. So I believe the water about which he speaks there is talking about his baptism. He didn't need to repent like everybody else. In fact, John the Baptist said, you should be baptizing me. And he said, this needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness. So there was a reason why he had to be baptized. He had to be an example for us. He had to demonstrate or, or kind of show a, a Uh, a sign or a type of what would happen when he died and was buried and he rose again the third day. And so his public ministry began at his water baptism. But then at his death, when he shed his blood, he he revealed himself to be the son as well. So the totality of of his public ministry demonstrates that he came from God and he was the son of God. And the spirit bears witness to that. He says, and it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. Now Jesus said that the Spirit testifies of the Son. He does not speak on his own accord. He's always magnifying and lifting up Jesus, always testifying to the Son. So when we pray for someone to get saved, we pray that the Spirit would testify to them that they need to choose Christ and need to receive Christ. So the Spirit bears witness, but even after coming to know the Lord, the Spirit bears witness that we're in the truth. And he's going to say that. He says, verse 7, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, 
the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Now, verse 7 is a very disputed verse. It's likely not in the original Greek, uh, but some believe that it is. It's likely something that a copyist added later to try to put the Trinity in there, but he didn't need to do that because the Bible teaches the Trinity all through uh, the whole Bible, actually. And, and so uh, he didn't have to explain it that you know, specifically in there. We don't know for sure, but uh, verse 8 is what I really want to focus on. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So he already mentioned the Holy Spirit, So the Spirit testifies that Jesus' life is legitimate. The Spirit testifies that he is the Son of God, that he lived a life that was pleasing to the Father, and he was the the satisfying sacrifice for the, the penalty of our sin. And so he says there, the Spirit, the water, the blood, all of that, everything that represents the totality of Jesus' public ministry, the Spirit testifies and agrees with those as well. Now let's look at, Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. Now, in the grammar, the word if has the idea of since, so it's really saying since we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God that he has testified of his Son. So the Spirit testifies We hear the witness of men. Men tell us things. We believe them. But God's testimony is greater than men. And God tells us that that Jesus is legitimate, that he truly is the Son of God. He is all that God claims him to be. And that when we have trusted in him and we believe in him, that all the promises associated with being in the new covenant are true for our lives. Verse 10. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So he who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. What does that mean? We're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the same idea. The Spirit himself testifies, and he says, in himself there, in in us. The Spirit bears witness in our lives that Jesus is the Son of God. And if we don't believe that, if we haven't trusted in Christ, we are lying, we're, we're portraying God as a liar related to what he has said about sending his son. And so I, I, like, I like the fact that he's so clear here, and he says that the son has been given at the end of verse 10. The son has been given. That means you don't earn the, the son. The son has been given as a gift to us, that God the Father has given the son to mankind as the Savior of the world, and we need to trust in that. Now he says God has given, given us eternal life. So he says that's past tense. We're going to see that again in a minute. He's already given us eternal life. So he says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So that sums it up. You can't have one without the other. 
And so if we don't accept the Son, then we don't get the Father. And people claim all over the place in this world that I know God. I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. I don't believe he's God in human flesh. I don't believe he's the promised anointed one. But I know the Father. And God's word says they're liars. You have to go through the Son to get to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. And so that's our message as believers. We go out into the world and we preach that Jesus is the only way. That's getting less and less popular, sadly, even in churches today. To say that Jesus is the only way, oh, wait, you can't make that judgment. What about all the other people in this world that have other people they believe in? What about them? God has the right to make the way narrow. He could have made it broad. He chose not to. And, and we're fine with you know, our immigration policy being very narrow, according to a certain narrow set of requirements. And God has the right to have a narrow immigration policy into heaven. You know, that if you want to immigrate to heaven and you want to populate heaven, then you need to go my way. And he has that, that right. Verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that's us, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So this word know there, it's not our word gnosko, knowledge by experience. It's an intuitive definition. We have this, in, this knowledge in an intuitive way and it's a one-time event that has continuing effects into the present. We know God has shown us, we know it, his spirit has bore witness with our spirits that we are children of God, we have eternal life, and the effects of it continues. You know, it's interesting, I've asked many people over 24 years of knowing the Lord, if you were to die today and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Because that's the way that you get to the bottom if they're trust, bottom of the, of the reality of what they're trusting in. If they're trusting in their works, they're going to say, I'm a good person. If they're trusting in that they, they merely believe that God exists, they're going to say, well, I would say to the Father, I believe that God exists. If they think they're religious, they're going to think, well, I've done religious works and so forth. You always get to the bottom of where they're at if you ask, why should I <clears throat> let you in, into my heaven? And so I've asked that, and so many times I get the, this. I get, I hope so. I think so. Well, I would hope that, you know, my de- good deeds would outweigh my bad. And, and here, God, this is God's heart for mankind. He, it's it's that, the last part of verse, thir- or the middle of verse 13. That you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to know it. He wants us to be confident in it. And the only way I can have confidence that I'm on my way to heaven, that if I died right now and my heart stopped that I would be in God's presence because not everybody goes to heaven when they die. That's what Scripture reveals for sure. The only way I can have that confidence and know it if, if, it's, not, if, if it's not based on my righteousness because that's what gives people a lack of confidence. Their sin, how they don't know. You see, this is the credible uh, dilemma people really have when they think about it. If God really made salvation a workspace salvation where we had to be a certain, do certain deeds or certain religious works, he would have told us what the standard was. 
He would have told us how we know if we've made the standard. But he, the reason why he hasn't made that standard that way, because we, re, we see in his word, he doesn't give us this, this, okay, if you do this many things, if you go to church this many times, if you share your faith this many times or whatever, he, he hasn't laid it out. For, so we don't know what the bullseye would be. There's no bullseye to be shot at because he hasn't given us a bullseye. So maybe you're here today and you've never received the Lord and you think that you're going to heaven because you believe in God, you've been religious, or you're a good person. God, God says you, you can't have eternal life that way. You only can have eternal life by trusting in what Jesus did for you on the cross, that he paid the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of your sins and trusting in that alone to pay your way to heaven. That's it. There is no other way. And then there's the other application for those of us that are believers already, and we still don't have confidence that we have eternal life. And that's a misunderstanding of the sufficiency of the cross. He paid for every sin, even the sins that you haven't committed yet. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. He wants you to have confidence in that. That's the basis from which all our spiritual maturity springs, is knowing that we have eternal life and having that helmet of salvation securely placed on our heads. One last observation, verse 13. He says, I want you to know that you have present tense eternal life. He's already said it in verse 11, that God has given past tense eternal life. Eternal life starts now when we receive Christ. That's when we receive eternal life. It speaks more of a quality of life rather than a, a, you know, a, a time frame. So he says, you have it right now, which means that he calls us to live like we have eternal life. Maybe we need a reminding of that today. I have eternal life. I'm supposed to live as if I have um, eternal life. I need to be heavenly minded. I need to quit investing so much in this world, my heart in this world, and my resources in this world. I need to sow into eternity because I have eternal life. It's already began. Verse 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So here he begins to encourage us to pray. And notice the word confidence there. Now this is the confidence we have. He wants us to have confidence when we approach him. And and this is how, how he reveals it to us. He says, if we pray anything according to his will. Prayer is not getting my will done. It's, uh, it's being allowing him to align my will to his will. And so when we pray, we need to pray according to his will, according to his word. And when we do that, we can have confidence that he's heard us. And if he's heard us, we know we have the answer to our prayer. That's why we need to know his word. His word is his will. So if we don't know his word, it's hard for us to know his will. There's a lot of things he says is his will in, in the word. So as we grow in that, we'll know better how to pray because we'll be praying things according to his word and and thus his will, and and we'll be praying things that are in line with what he wants. And so he gives us confidence. Now in verses 16 through 21, he's going to further elaborate us reaching out to those that are struggling. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he, capital H, he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, people always want to focus in on this sin that leads to death, but that's not really the primary focus of verse 16. 
The primary focus of verse 16 is not understanding what this sin leading to death or sin not leading to death is. It's what it's focusing on is continuing what he started in verses 14 and 15. He's calling us to prayer. That's the focus of verse 16. That we should go aggressively before the Lord in prayer for those who are sinning. Whatever category of sin uh, they're engaged in, we need to be in prayer. And notice the promise he gives for, part of, for, for a certain type of person that's engaged in certain types of sins. He says, he, he, says <clears throat> he, will, he, that is the Lord, will give him, that is the person struggling, life for those who commit sin not leading to death. So it's encouragement for us to pray for those people. And that's important for us. Now, some people interpret the sin leading to death as eternal death. He's talking about unbelievers and so forth. I think that that's, that's hard to fit that in here because he says in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sitting, the idea is another believer here. So I disregard that. And this is a hard verse, and he doesn't explicitly tell us what those sins are, what those categories are. I personally believe there are sins that a Christian can commit that speeds up the process of death, that God says it's better for you to be with me in heaven than to continue doing what you're doing. And I have two examples of that from the New Testament. The first is in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, where they were pretending that they were giving all to the church from the property that they sold when, when they were never told to give all of it. But they were acting as if they were giving all of it, and so they were committing hypocrisy. And so God, through Peter, smite them and, and killed them at that moment, at least the Ananias and later Sapphira. So God thought it was better to take them home. I believe they were believers. And, and so that's one example. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that the believers were coming together and they had their agape feasts at the time that they were having communion. Most, uh, a lot of the church services in that time were on Sunday evening. So they would work all day and then they would come together and fellowship and they, would, they were not preferring their brothers and they were eating food before the rest of them could get some. And because of their selfishness and putting themselves first and so forth, uh, they, were, they were eating the Lord's um, supper in an unworthy manner. A lot of times we interpret that as unbelievers receiving communion. It's not what the passage is talking about. So we're told in, in verse 29 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, says, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy matter, manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, referring to death. So there is a sin that leads to death. And so I believe John could very well be saying this. Pray for those who are in willful disobedience. If they are committing sin, which will lead to death, and they don't repent, God won't interfere with that. He's not going to interfere with that. It's going to be to where they've made that decision, and he's going to take them to be with him. But if they're not committing those types of sin, he will infuse life into the situation. Now, again, he's not told us which is which. So it doesn't matter. Our prayers are never wasted. Even if it's a prayer that leads to death, our prayers aren't wasted. And so we need to pray for any believer that is engaged in willful disobedience, that's backslidden, whether we know what type of sin or not or whatever, we need to pray for them. And God will answer um, the prayers uh, of those that are not sinning a sin that leads to death. Verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, 
and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So we need to know the tenses here in these verbs. That that helps us in the beginning of verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God, and the idea is, does not continuously sin, as we've seen earlier in the book. Doesn't live a lifestyle of willful disobedience to God. If you're born of God, you can't do that. You'll be miserable. You'll be convicted. You you just won't be able to continue uh, in that. But he says, but whoever has been born of God keeps himself. Now, there's different interpretations of this. You keep yourself or Jesus keeps you. Either way, if you keep yourself, you're relying upon Jesus' power and grace to do that. And and all glory goes to him regardless. And so that's our responsibility to put off the old man, put on the new man. To, to die to, the, to ourselves, to, to ask for, for God's power to not sin, to walk in the Spirit and thus not gratify the lust of the flesh. We've been given a responsibility to yield our hearts to him, to, to live holy before him, and he's faithful to live up to his end of it. At the end of verse 18, he says, and the wicked one does not touch him. The word touch means to cling. Jesus used this when Mary uh, uh, grabbed onto him after he rose from the dead. He said, do not cling to me. For I have not ascended to my God and your God, and so forth. So the, whole, the wicked one does not cling to us. We've been born of God. He can't cling to us. And we're told that most of the sin that happens in our lives and temptation happens from within, not from without. That our sinful nature, we're enticed by our sinful nature, and that we commit that sin. And people love to put all the blame on the enemy all the time. And, and probably 95% of our temptations have to do with our sinful nature and not the enemy. God emphasizes us putting off the old man, putting on the new man in scripture. He doesn't emphasize uh, doing spiritual warfare and all that as important as that is. And we are supposed to resist the devil. And we're we're supposed to be aware of his tactics and so forth. But the main emphasis in the New Testament is to die to self and take up our cross daily and follow him. Then he says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That gives us clarity. The whole world is, in de- is deceived into thinking that they're in control of their lives and everything's going to be okay and, they're, and, and, and the enemy works through that deception and God comes in and says, you are not uh, in, in your right mind. You're under the sway of the wicked one. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and, and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, This is the true God and eternal life. So he's given us understanding that we may know him. He has to initiate that in our lives for us to understand how to know him personally. And we're in him who is true. Everything about him is true. He's already told us that the spirit is truth. Everything about what the Lord says to us and what he does and how he works in our lives has to do with truth. And thus we should be speaking truth to one another fervently. And aggressively. But then he says at the end of verse 20, this is the true God and eternal life. So eternal life is not just a quality of life divorced from our relationship with him. What's going to make heaven heaven is not how beautiful it is, as wonderful as it's going to be. It's going to, it's going to be heaven because he's there. It's all based in him. We're told in Revelation, we're going to be getting there in the coming months, that he's at the center of he emphasizes that we're, he is at the center of the new Jerusalem. He's at the center of everything. 
It's him. He's the reward. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. And then lastly, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now for us, we don't carry around little, most of us don't. There are some little dashboard statues that you can get and so forth. But most of us don't have little idols that we think, when we think of idols, we think of these little figurines or these little things. But an idol can be anything. An idol is something that I put before God, that I go to instead of going to God. And I worship supremely. Whatever we worship supremely or the master passion of our life is our God. And it could be a a little g-god, an idol, or it could be the true and the living God. And all of us can at any time succumb to temptation and start to be engaged in idolatry. He's telling believers here, keep yourselves from idols. That means there's the temptation that's there that I could serve idols. It could be an idea in my mind that I've exalted or lifted up higher than, than God. It can be anything. It could be a hobby. It could be whatever. So he says, little children, again, we're his children, Keep yourselves from idols. And he says, amen, which means that's the truth. And so that's, he emphasizes that. He says, this is the truth, everything that I've said. So I want to summarize before we close. This book has been very clear. It's been very simple. It's been very much to the point, very blunt, to break through deception. Self-deception and the deception coming from others. He's emphasized that we need to walk in the light as he is in the light. And that we need to confess our sins to him and let him cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we have an advocate with the Father. And the importance of obedience in demonstrating our love for God and love for others. The importance of testing the spirits. But all of these things are a result of how he's worked in our lives and how he's initiated that love for us. And so all of us need to live a life pleasing to him as an expression of worship. That's what he's so, he's, he's so due. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, in light of all, that, all your inheritance in chapters 1 through 3, in chapter 4, he says, walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. That's our portion. That's our calling. And so may we do that in his power, by his grace, for his glory, and, and serve one another in helping one another do that. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love and your great... Uh, a um, supernatural word that you've given to our lives. Thank you for First John. Lord, we look forward to getting into Second John and Third John and seeing what you have for us there. So we pray, Lord, that all these verses that we've looked at, all these chapters, Lord, that you would use those things in our lives, Lord, to make us more, uh, more worshipers, Lord, to make us more of a worshiper and to have our lives be pleasing to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a body to be gracious towards one another, to be forgiving, to be loving unconditionally, to be serving one another. You emphasize so much that we should be loving one another in this book. I pray, Lord, that we would find new ways to serve one another, that we'd be listening to your Spirit's voice in being available to use our spiritual gifts and our servant's heart that you've given us to help one another be built up in love. We thank you for the privilege of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.